When you have an opportunity, like tonight, the uh, street witnessing team is going to be out here on the corner. If you happen to be in the area or you're just going to hang out on uh, Colorado for a while, you might just bump into them. You'll see them. They'll be on the corner of Grand Oaks in Colorado right here sharing the gospel until not too late, you know, because after about 9 p.m., 9, 10-ish, it starts to get a little dicier on the parade route and not as, not as fun. And uh, so especially if you have small children and stuff, you might want to be careful. But if you happen by, you will see them out there sharing the gospel of Jesus. And the gospel of Jesus, of course, the word gospel means good news. It is the good news that God, the creator, has actually come to earth as a human man to reveal himself, completed his sacrificial death on the cross, purchasing every single human being that ever lived from the death and destruction of this world, revealing his supremacy over death by the resurrection from the dead and the certainty of his purpose to be accomplished in the life of every person. You know, there are a whole variety of responses that people get when they hear the gospel. I I wish I could remember the first time I'd ever heard the gospel. I have no idea. I know that when I was about five years old, I had an uncle who was a pastor, and my great-grandfather was also a pastor, and my uncle kind of cornered me outside of my grandmother's house and began talking to me about Jesus. I don't remember exactly what he said, all of it, but I just know I was really uncomfortable and he wasn't about to let me go anywhere. He wanted to make sure I understood some things. And it was that's kind of very interesting because I spoke at his funeral. And I got to share with his kids and his grandchildren how that, you know, he cared enough about me at five years old to take the time to share the gospel with me. Even though I was unresponsive, hey, the Lord knows. People respond in all kinds of different ways. One of the responses that I find kind of compelling, a little interesting from people the idea that, well, if God is here, why doesn't he just show up? Why is he playing all these games with faith and belief and things that we can't see? And you know, the truth is, God doesn't play games. People play games. God is all business. He doesn't do anything without purpose. God never does anything without purpose. And uh, he has specific and important purposes. We need to be confident of that and assured of it. The gospel of Christ can only be understood by the Holy Spirit of God as it is revealed in the word of God. Like the book of Psalms, as we're looking at here today in Psalm number 46. The Psalms are instruments of worship. They're things conceived and put together, set forth to um, facilitate worship. You also, by the way, are an instrument of worship. You were created to worship God. That's, if you were wondering, you got up this morning, you said, why am I alive? That's your number one. You're alive to worship God. That's why you're here. And so if things seem sort of fruitless and meaningless to you, take a second look at that. Is there some reason that I'm feeling meaningless and, and fruitless in my life? Maybe I'm not worshiping God in the way that he intends me to. The Psalms, of course, you know, you and I are living beings with free will. The Psalms are recorded poetry intended for the purpose of worship. And actually, we are the vehicles that they're intended to operate for the benefit of and from the scripture. Contained in the 150 individual songs of Psalms, every fundamental biblical truth of faith, the character of God, the salvation principles, the law, 
the wisdom of God, the nature of mankind, every important point of significant theology, all included in 150 Psalms. In fact, one of the ways that people, the people of the Old Testament, learned the truth of Scripture is that they worshipped using these verses. The individual truths of the Bible are brought home to them, given understanding, and they even you know, have a clear application. This really is what the Apostle Paul meant in Colossians 3.16 when he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom and teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Singing a verse of Scripture Maybe, I mean, from my experience, the very best way to commit it to memory. Uh, singing a verse of Scripture is the only way that I ever learned First John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. And I was thinking earlier, let the words of my... I've got to find out where that's at. And the meditations of my heart be acceptable. So many other verses are with us in our hearts and in our minds because we learn them in song. The introduction to the psalm here, the first part of really about the first half of verse 1, Psalm 46, verse 1, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song for Alamoth. Okay, to the chief musician, a reference to the Levite who would be leading worship at the time. This particular psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah, probably a reference to the Korah of the Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebellion during the book of Numbers, the time of Moses. These are guys who uh, Korah got the idea that Moses and Aaron were taking too much authority upon themselves, and so he got together with another guy named Dathan and another fellow named Abiram, and they went up to the tent of meeting, and they said, you know, Moses and Aaron, we want to talk to you. And they said, yeah, what can we do for you? And they said, well, you've taken too much authority upon yourself. You know, we all, God cares about us. We all have uh, the spirit of God as well. And so we just think you've bitten off too much here and God doesn't want you doing all this stuff that you want. At which point Moses and Aaron hit the floor in their faces and said, oh, God, help you. And so uh, actually, uh, number 1631, it came to pass as he finished speaking. This is Moses all these words that the ground split apart under them, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, all the men of Korah and all their goods. Earth opened up and swallowed them alive. The idea is that they went alive into Sheol, which is pretty unique in the Bible. Uh, however, we also know in Numbers twenty six eleven, nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. The, his kids were not, were not killed hopefully an encouraging thing for us. Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So we're responsible for ourselves. Our kids don't bear our responsibility. Important points. The sons of Korah are from the family of Kohath, and they're Levites. They were a group of men involved in the worship ministry as organized during the time of David and Solomon and thereafter. And the introduction also tells us that this is a song for Alamoth. Alamoth, the word Alamoth means girls or young women. And as there's not really a reference for organized groups of women singing, uh, the word Alamoth is very similar to the word for virgin in Isaiah 7.14. 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That word for virgin is the word Alma. And so you see the the correlation between the two words. Uh, We speculate, we don't really know, but we speculate that the intention was that the psalm should be played in the higher register or sung in like a soprano range. And so that's why it's for Alamoth and the girls are are mentioned in that place. But honestly, we don't really know for certain. Uh, Like so many psalms, in the first verse here is the key to understanding the Lord's purpose in this psalm. The Lord sets down the principle for us in uh, the the B part, the second part of verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God, our refuge. Notice the is is added by the translators. It's in italics there. So it really is God, our refuge and strength. It's almost like this is, he, this is who he is. He is our refuge and strength. If God is our strength, and our strength does not come from our own ability or our aptitude or even our initiative, I mean, I mean some people have more individual fortitude, no more uh, stick-to-itiveness. You know, some, peop- some people are just stubborn, okay? And, uh, and that may be. That's the truth. Certainly people are different in that regard. But for the Lord's purpose, that's not the key issue. Here, the only strength that is of any real significance is our ability to rely upon the strength that God supplies. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 9. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent and in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. Interesting. Perhaps in this verse implying that the wicked have a greater human strength than his saints. And we see that all the time. You've all heard, you know, might makes right, you know. God helps those that help themselves. Many years ago, I worked as a security guard, and I spent half the night arguing with some guy who was trying to tell me that that was in the Bible. I said, no, I've read the Bible a little, and it's not in there. And he said, no, no, I can find it. Give me your Bible. And he said, all night, you know, two, three hours. It's not in God, you know. God blesses hard work. God does bless hard work. And if you want to interpret that as God helping those who help themselves, well, it's certainly an initiative. He doesn't expect us to sit on our hands. God will not do for you what you can do, especially as he expects you to be obedient to him. But the strength that people need is strength that comes from God. And there's a whole other area of our lives in which we need to develop as people in order to access that strength that's not what we would consider normal human stock and trade. Normal people on the street don't endeavor to learn how to receive the strength that God provides. This quote that I just read from 1 Samuel 2.9 is, it's interesting, it's the, uh, from the prayer of the words of uh, Hannah, the wife 
of uh, Elkanah, the mother of Samuel, as she is in chapter 9 thanking the Lord for giving her a child. And we'll go back to her a little bit as we go through the study here in Psalm 46, because she has some very, she's a very interesting woman, has some interesting things to say about this issue of drawing strength from God and uh, understanding his purpose at work. Um, the Hebrew word here for refuge is also, at least in the King James Bible, translated shelter. It's also translated trust. In Psalm number 73, it's translated hope in Jeremiah chapter 17. The Lord as a refuge is kind of a, it's a fascinating picture. And we'll see it a couple more times through this psalm before we're through. Here it says that the Lord is a very present help in trouble. When you talk to believers, Christians, people who are going to church and reading the Bible and seeking the Lord, you don't get much opposition to the idea that God loves his people. When you say, you know, God loves his people, nobody says, no, not really. I mean, everybody's pretty agreeable to that fact. I mean, the Bible is very plain. God loves his people. However, if you look at it a little closer, there's occasionally differing opinions among many believers, people that would like to see God's love revealed in maybe a different way than the Lord has chosen. Uh, This idea that they have, you know, they have a better idea than God on the best way to take care of his people. That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing that I think I have a better idea. Now, to be fair, these are not people who sit around all day and think up the ways that God is wrong, but things happen in their lives and they stop and say, God, what are you doing? I understand that. I understand. I, you, you may have been there yourself. You know, God, why are you allowing this? You know, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. And it's a difficult thing to get your mind back on track to try and figure out what has gone doing. It's, it's an aspect. It's a surrender thing. You, you have to hand it over. You're like, you look at it and say, well, I, I don't get this. I don't understand this. But I'm going to hand it over to God anyway. I'm going to commit it to him and be confident in his ability. When God chooses to intervene not in the way that we think he should, it's not a mistake on his part. There is an important purpose. And, and I'd like to suggest to you that to the degree of pain or hardship or difficulty that we experience in the situation of our life also corresponds to the importance of the issue that God is bringing to pass. What does that mean? God is not going to put you through this much pain, hardship, and suffering for this much benefit. Okay? I think that's a reasonable... God God knows who we are, folks. He knows who we are. He knows what we can handle, what we can't handle. Uh, The scripture says that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, that the Lord will not allow us to be overtaken in any temptation, that we're, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. Again, people have differing opinions about this. God, you're mistaken. I can't take this trial. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from people. And I understand where they're coming from. But the bottom line is God knows who I am better than I do. He does. He does. And Often, the only thing that I can do is surrender myself into his hands and trust and seek his strength to hold me up, to make a way for me. God has a purpose. 
it kind of raises another question for us, and that is, how do you allow God's strength to work in you? Well, unfortunately, there's, there's no formula. It's like step one, step two, step three, bingo! You've got God's strength, I wish. Um, good place to start is the scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul's kind of lecturing the people who live in southern Greece and talking to them about the difficulties that he deals with. He shares a struggle with something he calls his thorn in the flesh. He also calls it a, a messenger of Satan. 2 Corinthians 12.8, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I'm not sure I entirely understand that. But I believe that it's true. And I believe that when in my frailty and my inability to do the thing that I think I need to do, I cry out to God, there is somehow in that mix an opportunity for him to intervene in a very direct way. And um, that's my hope. See, my hope is not that I'm going to understand how this system works so that I can make it happen. That's not, that's not going to happen. My hope is that God, in spite of my foolishness and my inability, will find a way to get his strength to work in my life to provide that refuge that I need. We know God wants his strength to work powerfully in our lives because he says at the end of the verse, verse 1 there, He is a very present help in trouble. You know, God's communication to us is all about the words. The words are tools that God uses to shine the light of his truth into our our understanding. They are like little packages of amazing revelation. You ever find a, read a scripture verse and then like have it open up to you for the very first time and just understand, it's like having something explode in your brain. It's wild. You know, God uses uh, these words to set order into our understanding and into our lives. Before I was a believer, I saw the whole world backwards. I remember sitting on a chair in my little house in Santa Monica with a New American Standard Bible in front of me, looking at the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and I sort of stared up at the wall and thought, everything I know is wrong. I really said that to myself. And it's pretty absolutely true. Everything that I thought, everything that I believed was backward and wrong and cart before the horse. The words of God are pregnant. They're exploding with the thoughts of God. And his thought, his truth is this thing that opens the light of heaven before us. His, his word is a light unto our path. Shows us where to go, what to do. Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith, which is the instrument, the the vehicle of salvation in your life and mine. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Verse 1 calls God our refuge, not the world's refuge or the refuge of mankind or even the refuge of people. Our refuge. It's personal. It is individual to us, to each one of us. He is our, I can rightly say that God is my refuge. He is my refuge. 
And I can sit down with you if you're a believer in Christ and tell you with some substantial authority, God is the refuge of your life. And, and he's not present in trouble. He is very present. He's extremely present. And meaning what? That he is present in the extreme. That he could not, under the circumstances, possibly be more present than he is. Even though I don't see him. Even though I don't see his influence at work in the moment. Or I don't feel goosebumps or have chicken skin. I don't, am not experiencing, I don't hear his voice. He's there. He is there. And if I'm confident in the word of God, I have to be confident in that. A very present help in trouble. You know, it's interesting, this, this part of the verse 1, a very present help in trouble, it's very similar to my strength is made perfect in weakness. There's a cor- correlation between those two ideas. They work together. What if I start to give consideration, start to give my attention to this idea that he's not present, that he's, you know, he's not, obviously not concerned. He's not my refuge. You know, I, I seem to be my only refuge here. When I do that, I put myself at odds with the words of Scripture. Not a good place. I put myself at odds with the Lord to some degree. What should I believe? My feelings? My intellect? My vast storehouse of amazing wisdom? <laughs> or the words of God? It's really, this is no-brainer. The words of God. Verse 1 makes the statement for us of the attributes of God. In, in our aid, for our protection, for our benefit. Verse 2 states the ideal response to his help. Verse 2 reads, Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, Though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah. Now, at the end of verse 3 there, that word Selah, you're going to find that 71 times in the book of Psalms. It's all over the place. It also shows up in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, three times. Um, The word, uh, it comes from a root. The root for the word is the Hebrew word Sil. and means to lift up. And again, we, we speculate that this word indicates a musical change, even a pause or perhaps a pause for reflection to lift up. And that's what the word means. And it shows up again all over three times in this particular psalm. Verse 2 says, Therefore we will not fear. Now, the situation laid out in these, uh, in these verses is pretty severe. Even though the earth be removed... And though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its... Sw- I'd like to say that these are like hyperbole. This is gross exaggeration for the sake of illustration, although that's not the case because these things can happen and they really do happen and they have actually happened from time to time. It does happen. Although uh, I've never seen it in person. seen some of it on YouTube, though. As I was reading through this psalm, and by the way, you know, there's all this talking about the earth shaking and the mountains being moved into the sea. I thought, how appropriate for the sons of Korah after their great-great-grandfather was swallowed up by the earth. And anyway, uh, interesting coincidence. Uh, I was looking on YouTube at the uh, videos of uh, 
the tsunamis at the uh, Fukushima earthquake in 2011. And um, it's just crazy stuff. It, I mean, it really is. It's very difficult to take it in, to understand it. I, I, you, you watch it and it's, it doesn't really have the same effect. I think if you're really there, it's probably really horrific. You can hear people screaming. And they're not even people who are being harmed. They're just people who are standing back and watching. And they're just out of control. It's bizarre. Um, it's a difficult thing to take in these examples and have some kind of a frame of reference to appreciate what that level of destruction might do to your state of mind, uh, something akin to panic. We have this tendency to see the works of man, the things that people do, as so substantial and permanent. And they're really not. They're anything but. I really think, folks, you and I, we live atop what with the least little disturbance, our world is nothing more than the largest garbage pile that's ever existed. And... Uh, I think it wouldn't take much to reduce our world to that. Isaiah 40, 17 says, All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are accounted to him as less than nothing in vanity. Daniel 4, 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army and the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? What... What great thing of this world will provide you the security that you crave? Many years ago, gosh, probably back in the 1980s, I went to a meeting for people who were going to start selling uh, term life insurance. And there was a company, A.L. Williams Company, and they did like this pyramid marketing thing, and you could start selling insurance, and if you sold a lot, you'd make a lot of money and stuff like that. It's, the way, it's like so many other, you know, sort of like... Um, there are chemical companies out there that do the same thing, I think. And uh, there was a guy who spoke at the meeting, and he actually had been the manager of In-N-Out on Foothill Boulevard right here. And then he, he left In-N-Out, and he purchased a Christian bookstore on Lake Avenue. It was called Christian Corner, and he owned that bookstore for many years. And then he was talking to this group of guys who were going to become insurance salesmen, uh, which I was thinking about at the time. Or Actually, somebody asked me to go. I wasn't too enthusiastic about it. Stood up in front of these people and he said, you know, all my life, you know, I've done all these things. I made money. I had all these transactions. I did really well. I made a lot of money with In-N-Out. And I had this Christian bookstore and I made a lot of money there and I did all this. And he says, now I'm involved in this insurance uh, scheme. He didn't call it a scheme. And uh, he said, this, this legitimate business is so wonderful. And uh, now for the first time in my life, I'm getting near to having financial security. And I thought to myself, this guy is smoking crack. I really did. Because you know why? You want to know why? There is no such thing as financial security. It does not exist. It has never existed and it will not exist. It is contrary to the nature of finances to be able to provide real security. There are people out there chasing that carrot all day long, trying to find it. It is not there. Security has to come from something else, folks. The things of this world won't do it. What institution, what collection of anything attached to this world, everything attached to this world is temporary. 
anything anchored in the security of this present world is going down. And it's going to go down ugly. Take my word for it. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, While we, believers, look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, unbelievers hear that, and they say, well, that's just double talk. You know, that's Bible gibberish. Why would you even say that? I understand that it may seem that way to you, but the reality of this situation is it's the things that are not seen, the things of the spiritual world are the only things that provide a real refuge for any person. The things that we see in this world are powerful, at least in terms of dominating our attention, our thoughts. Our enemy works this to his greatest advantage to keep us enslaved to the worries of this world. One of the reasons that Jesus, in Luke chapter 21, condemns worrying and drunkenness in the same sentence. Luke 21, 34, Take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. Remember who you are. Remember why you're here. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Also, do not be distracted by bright flashing lights. (laughs) And this, hey... God is really providing a counterpoint for us here. Seriously. He's providing us a counterpoint to see the difference between our world and the things that are important to to, us. He's providing a proper attitude and a direction for our lives. And no, it may not be easy. And it can be extremely difficult at times. I know every person here today, folks, I know each one of you have some issue of concern that's weighing upon you. And we could use any one of you guys as an example. I think about our brother, this guy, Andrew Brunson. And I mentioned his name to you before, who is stuck in a prison cell somewhere in Turkey under the Lord knows what kind of conditions. And why is he there? He's been there for a little over a year now. Why? For the good work that he spent some 20 years serving and blessing and caring for the people of Turkey in the gospel of Jesus. And he's now accused of every terrible crime against the state with no idea of when or whether he will ever be released or ever see his family again. There's a real person just like you. That really has to be the hardest thing for him, the concern for his family during this terrible time. And what does the Lord expect of this guy? What does God expect of him? What does he hold to in the forefront of his mind? How does he bring his thoughts captive to Christ? How does the Lord instruct him hour by hour to fix his thoughts, to be mindful of the things above? Not to dwell upon his home here in the United States. No. But to be mindful of his real home. Look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place 
the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. Notice the gender. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. To see that river, to hear its water flow, what a thing, folks. What a thing. So far beyond our faintest understanding. They say it's darkest just before the dawn. I, you know, I don't know about that. Maybe it's true. Maybe on some days. I do know that the hour of dawn is when the women arrived at the tomb of Jesus to discover that the stone had already been rolled away so that they could see that his body was gone. So that they could look inside. And it took a little bit of time. It took, it took a little bit of time and I don't know if it was Peter first or John or perhaps Mary Magdalene. Can you imagine being the first person on the planet to realize that Jesus is not dead? What a thing. You ever been in a group of people, you're trying to figure something out, what are we doing? And all of a sudden it clicks, boom, light goes off in your head and you're, hey everybody, look. What an amazing thing. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. The moment at which all the trajectory of mankind changes in our view forever. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Hebrews chapter one verse 11 verse 1. An interesting thing happened here in verses 4 and 5. The focus of the psalm shifts in some way from the individual child of God to the city of God. Which is very interesting seeing as how we're blessed to have the New Testament, something the sons of Korah didn't have, but I mean, obviously, they had the Holy Spirit because the church is the bride of Christ, is the New Jerusalem. It's the New Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul makes a point in Ephesians 5 that, that Christ is the, uh, the church is the bride of Christ. Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry. And as your bridegroom rejoices over your bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The church is the bride of Christ. Revelation 7, 19, 7. Let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true the sayings of God. The church is the bride of Christ and the bride of Christ in the city of God. When God creates new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21.12, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Uh, 21.9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride of the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the city, the new Jerusalem. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 It says, coming to him as a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, 
holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Folks, we are in this process. We're in the process of transcending this world. You're going to be here a very brief time. I know if you're 14 or 17, it seems like you're going to be here forever. You're not. It goes really quick. I sat next to my wife down here this morning, and I said that this year is going to be our uh, 19th anniversary. And she hit me. And I said, what? I said, oh, I'm sorry, 39th. Um, I've been married 39 years, you know, and, and uh, um, two years it'll be 40. And it's really fast. It's unbelievably fast. I will not be alive on this planet for very long, a few days. And you as well. I, I don't care how old you are. Tomorrow is promised to no one. You have a very brief time. You are in the process of transcending this world. And that process began the moment that God himself spoke to you from the scripture and you realized that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. When you put those ideas together, the process began of you leaving this world into eternity where you will be with him forever. It is sometimes a difficult and arduous process, sometimes painful. But nothing can stop it. Just as our father Abraham in days gone by, Hebrews 11.10 said he waited for a city which has foundations, a city built on something whose builder and maker is God and you are that city. You are the city of God. This vision of the new Jerusalem kind of transports us to the end of the age. And if you look at verse 6, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, and the earth melted. Realistically, you could see verse 6 is all of human history. It, it fits the criteria. The nations raged, kingdoms were moved, God uttered his voice, the earth melted. Bang. It's interesting because, you know, if, if you look through the Bible and you see God encapsulate periods of human history, he doesn't really, um, he doesn't pay much respect to human history. He doesn't, you know, point out what we would consider to be the high points of human achievement. It's like, yeah, it was, that's it, it's gone. And it's understandable. I mean, Isaiah 65, 17, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Obviously, if we're never going to remember them, you know, we're never going to remember the BBC. We're never going to remember uh, OPEC. We're never going to remember uh, the uh, North Atlantic trade, uh, NATO, whatever. You know, we're never going to remember Calvin Klein. We're never going to remember uh, the Beatles. We're never going to... I mean, it's not. It's gone. We are transcending this world. Thank you, Lord. You know, just this year, you guys, it passed so quickly. I mean, it was so fast. And our lives here in this world will pass from all the commotion and all the confusion of this world. And what remains? Verse 7 says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Taking us back to the same idea, basically, in the last part of, of verse 1. The Lord of hosts. Here in verse 7, this is a really interesting title, and it is a title of the Lord the Lord of hosts. It's a military term. Uh, the word hosts is the Hebrew word sabah. And uh, the very 
uh, it actually it's translated uh, the host, meaning an army of men, also an army of angels. It can also be a reference to the sun and moon and the stars and all of the entire creation. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of the host. The origin of this term is kind of interesting. Uh, it shows up for the first time as a title of the Lord back with Samuel's mother, Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. Samuel's mother, in her vow to give her firstborn son to the Lord, is the first person to use this term. It's kind of interesting for a lady to use a military term as a name for God. But she's a very special person. Uh, what greater security could any person have than having the Lord of hosts of heaven with us? What better refuge could we seek than the God of Jacob? You see, like you, Jacob didn't really deserve God's help and protection. And don't get me wrong, Jacob was a great man. He was an awesome guy. And I really, I'm grateful to the Lord for his example, for his life and his family, and all that we have in the book of Genesis concerning Jacob. But you see, Jacob lived through terrible times, folks. He had, uh, he, Jacob had like, I think he holds the world record for family trouble. And part of it was his own fault. I mean, you don't have four wives and all those kids without expecting some difficulty. But he also had in-law problems. He had brothers that were kind of crazy. He had a mom that was out of control. And all these things weighed upon him constantly. Uh, he lost loved ones and had, you know, children that were attacked and assaulted and had other children that went off and killed a bunch of people. And all these things, Jacob continued to trust in the Lord. Not without difficulty, not without bumps in the roads, not without problems. But can, where does he go? Read Jacob. He continues to go back to God because he knows that there is help in no other. He continues to go to the promises of God's word. And so must we. Even though we don't deserve them. I think it is so important to realize, folks, that you don't deserve the help that God gives you. It's only by his grace. It gives us a right perspective of where we are and how good God really is. Here in verse 8, the Lord calls us to be witnesses to examine some of his works in the world of men. And in verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. He, really, two examples. First, that he has made desolations in the earth, which I think, you know, this beginning of verse 8, this has got to qualify as one of the great understatements of all time. Not only has God made desolations in the earth, he has at least once made the entire earth one huge desolation, eliminating most of the life on the planet, leaving irrefutable evidence that in the fossil record and numerous geological proofs of what he's done, uh, beyond all denial, still men have managed to confuse their understanding of it. Not a surprise, really. Never underestimate uh, people's ability to confuse the truth. The word desolations here is the Hebrew word shama, and which is translated horror and appallment, waste, generally on the horrific negative side of the scale. The second thing he wants us to notice 
in verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. And to illustrate, he destroys the tools of warfare, breaks the bow, cuts the spear in two, burns the chariot with fire. You know, folks, I don't know that there is anything in the world of men more terrible than war. Some of you here uh, today may actually have been involved in a war at some time or another. Uh, The surviving uh, veterans of World War II are just about all gone. There are not very many of those men and women left alive today. They're in their 90s. Um, War is terrible. Uh, Whole nations of people devoted to the destruction of an entire nation. I know there's just words, but the reality of it is a very difficult thing. There, there are not many people in our culture that understand about war, what it really is or how it works. Works is probably a bad word. How it functions. People have ideas. Uh, in the modern world, you know, we're very, we're uh, elevated in our lofty principles. People have ideas about rules of engagement and conventions that limit weapons and combatants and Um, folks, in real war, there are no rules. In a real war, there are no rules, okay? Even in a situation, the person who wins, the victor, is scarred for life and stained with the destruction that kills them from the inside out. The idea of civilizing warfare is, is fascinating. You know, it's maybe even noble. But to trust in such, put your trust in an idea, in a, in a, in a world of men, or twisted nature, is a bad bargain. The end of wars, as Jesus lays it out, or the scripture lays it out for us here, is God's gift to the millennial reign of Christ that for a thousand years we will have real peace, something that only God can achieve. People, people try. Men have tried for a thousand generations. They've worked and labored and toiled. They've denied themselves, dedicated themselves to all kinds of lofty principles and employed the advantage of religious virtue. They've argued themselves into unconsciousness. People do good deeds. They help the poor, create shelter. They uh, stack up refugee camps upon camps, creating generations of disgruntled and hateful groups, drawing boundaries and borders and hatching plans and plots and conspiracies until the need for peace is something only old men can understand. When grandfathers see small children crucified in Syria because they come from Christian families, they see their grandchildren Old men know that what happens in one place can happen in another. When a new generation rises up to stake its claim on the field of death, and they will. They will. James chapter 4 verse 1 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? That war in your members you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Because in the heart of man, folks, there is a vacuum that can only be filled with the presence of the Lord of hosts. 
He is the only refuge. He is the only one that can bring sanity to the striving of man. How do we learn? How can we be instructed to see beyond the vanity of our own nature? We are buried in information, education, statistics, the new plan, the new, new plan, the new plan point two. Starting from mankind, the answer is it's not going to happen. We need a higher authority. We need one that can speak to us in a truth that goes beyond our very limited understanding. Information about God is everywhere to those that are open. You know, Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 97 says the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Creation testifies powerfully, but it is the other voices that make it so hard to hear. Even the lights of the city blot out the stars, don't they? The claims of academic and moral superiority from the world of men. That is a terrible joke. Do we really believe that this, this all happened by accident? Do you really believe that? You know, I know there are people here who have committed to the idea of evolution. And, you know, I, you know, I hope that you have the Lord in your heart. That's, that's the important thing. But do you really believe this all happened by accident? You know, the, the basic perspective of your average secular cosmologist is the universe just one of those things that happens from time to time? Really? Information about God can be useful, but it is what we call special revelation that changes the lives of men and women forever. It is when God speaks to the individual. God doesn't have any grandchildren, his children. God has to speak to every individual human being, one-on-one. You can't be part of a club. You can't be part of a movement or an organization. You have to be part of the body of Christ. You have to hear from God himself. And we need to listen. Look at verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God invites us. Be still and know. And then he gives us the outcome. He's going to be exalted among the nations and in the earth. This is not an instruction like Eastern meditation to empty your mind. This is an admonition from the Lord to cease from endless activity and noise. Proverbs 10.19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Okay, so how do we be still and know? First of all, folks, it hinges on his word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 63, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Do you ever look at the things that Jesus says? Jesus says crazy things. Seriously, you cannot find any other person in the Bible that says things like Jesus says, except God. He says, he doesn't say the words I speak to you will give you life. He doesn't say the words I speak to you will help you find the life you need. 
the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The words are life. That's crazy. He doesn't say, I can help you find the way. He says, I am the way. It's wild. It really is. And you know, and, and my fear, I, I get numb to this as I'm reading through the Gospels. I just glaze right over that stuff and miss it. I can't imagine the faces of people listening to him in Jerusalem. Their mouths just had to drop. Did, did he say what I thought he said? Yes, he did. He said exactly what you thought. In John chapter 7, verse 17, he gives us some powerful insight. He says, if anyone wants to do his will, meaning the Father's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. You want to find out where the word of God is coming from? Do it. Do what it says. Take this book and do what it says. And if you do what it says, it will happen and you will know. You will not suspect. You will not lean in the direction. You will not have an opinion. You will know. You want to do the will of God if you're obedient to his word. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will compare him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, did not fall for it was founded on the rock. Be still and know. Not be persuaded, know. I sat in my little house in Santa Monica with my New American Standard Bible reading the first chapter, the Gospel of John. I knew. I knew it was done. No wiggle room. How do we know? Because the Lord himself makes himself known to every single person as he has promised in the same way the disciples of Jesus came to believe in him, in the same way the early church fathers as the same way the Apostle Paul believed. In Romans 1.16, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. The just shall live by faith. From faith to faith, according to the promise of the ages, according to God's purpose for every man, woman, and child ever born. Today, Folks, more Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ than in any time in the history of our world. Remember that. Tell people that. They're not hearing it on the news. They're not seeing it on television. But it's true. Today, this day, Sunday, the 31st of December, people are all over in Iran protesting in the streets because of the terrible, oppressive Islamic government that is seeking to destroy the Christian world. And there, we need to be in prayer for these people. We need to be praying for every one of them. Many of them are not believers in Christ and they need to receive that, that New Testament so that they can look and see the word of God and God will speak to them and they'll come to faith. People are hearing the gospel of Jesus for the first time today. And as they humble themselves, they ask the Lord to forgive their sins. They profess faith in Christ. Just as he did in your life, he will reveal himself to them and they will boldly say right there in verse 11 the lord of hosts is with us the god of jacob is our refuge Selah. people want to know why doesn't god just show up the answer because of faith our confidence in the lord and in his words has to be anchored outside of this present world 
Miracles do not save people. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Look at the miracles the children of Israel saw in the destruction of Egypt. And yet, the book of Hebrews tells us that they were not operating in faith. And so in the 40 years, they all died in the wilderness because they did not have faith towards God. Miracles do not save people. For God to write the gospel of Matthew in the sky and fire would not in and of itself save people. The word of God saves people. The word of God, the spirit of God in our hearts. My attachment to the Lord, folks, is not dependent upon the situation of this world. It can't be. We tell our children to pay attention. If you think about it, you only have so much attention to offer each day. Some of it is taken from you by force. But for the most part, we choose where and to what degree we will invest our thoughts and our understanding. And let me suggest to you that we need to be miserly with our attention, with what we pay attention to, with what we take in willfully. We need to be miserly with the minds that God has given us, lest we be infected with the plague of this world and suffer the consequences. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 tells us the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And that's not news to us, is it? We see it every day. I have to be anchored in eternity. I have to be mindful of the things above. Because that is the only real security that any person can have. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. And that's forever. Father, we want to thank you, Lord. Thank you for being here with us today. We thank you for your word and, Lord, your grace upon us, Father. We are blessed to have opportunity, Lord, to be a part of a community of believers, Lord, that trusts in you. And, Father, be encouraged and strengthened by so many amazing people. Father, that you use powerfully day in and day out. Father, we pray for ourselves, Lord. We pray, Lord, for your spirit to work in us, to fill us, and the Lord to give us that perspective, Lord, that we need for the coming year. Father, we don't know what's coming. We don't know what will transpire this coming year, but Lord, you do. You hold the future. And Father, because of that, you are our hope in every issue. We thank you. We love you, Lord. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we'd like to give you an opportunity. If the Lord has spoken to you by his spirit and you have a desire to surrender your life into the hands of Jesus, you can do that this afternoon. I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you choose to, you can pray it sincerely along with me. The Lord hears your voice and he's been waiting for this moment to touch your life with his spirit. If it's your desire to receive Christ, repeat this prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Christ died for me on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a new life. I pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.